in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you open up our true way of the spirit. I thank you how you gift individuals to be able to teach. And I thank you for how you gifted Lee. I ask that you would bless his words. I ask that you would open our ears. And I ask that you would speak what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start in Acts 2, verse 22. And um, what I want to do is I want to look at this section. This is a, a, an excerpt from Peter's first sermon. And I want to rewind so we can see the contrast between the old Peter and the Peter from this section here. So from Acts 2, verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of, Christ, or of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who, who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is, it's powerful. And I think especially if we look at the attitude in the Middle East today to go and preach. When's the last time that 3,000 people came to know the Lord? The, the, the working in these people's hearts and how they've been prepared is just astonishing. The, the words that Peter speaks, they're powerful, they're fearless, they're bold. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So keep that in mind, and then rewind a month prior. 
Okay, wow, Peter, so, so you were with Jesus. No, 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 I wasn't. But Peter, you're one of his disciples. I am not. I am not one of his disciples. Peter, you totally are. <laughs> you admit you know Jesus. You're a Galilean on top of that. We know this. And you, you see these words that are spoken to him. And in Mark 14, which is difficult to turn to, in Mark 14, verse 71, he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. So how do you transit from this vehement denial followed by weeping to this sermon from, from Acts? Because it's not the same personality. He's, he's in Jerusalem. He's still technically under threat from the same religious powers that, that are operating. But his behavior is so different. And it's by recognizing and owning our inadequacies before Christ and receiving the glorious bounty of himself. And if that sounds simple, because it sounds simple to me, it's because it's words in our head. As a man, speaking personally, respect derived from accomplishment is, is a really big deal. To have another man ask you to do something and then to know that you carried out that request with expertise and professionalism. That's a big deal without any kind of payment, right? It's just that you were asked to do something. It's an honor to be asked to do something. And then you perform that task well. Maybe nobody recognized it, but you know, yes, I did this. The emotional association is that to do well is to be esteemed. Peter is a man whom Jesus had asked, follow me. And then and Peter knew full well that his failure was known. At that scene in the courtyard before the rooster crows, he knows that his failure is known and that his shameful conduct, it's exposed to his Lord whom Peter loved. It's the impossibility of living the life that he was called to live. It was proved to Peter by Peter. This is my cute way of articulating it, is that Peter showed Peter that Peter was, had Petered out. Which, just as a side note, I don't know if that's the origin of the phrase to peter out. Um, if it was, it's just like, what's, what's your name associated with? Declining and coming to nothing. But to be fair to Peter, when you see the, 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 the words and the works in, in Acts, I think it's something that he would be proud of. He's like, yeah, for Peter to come to an end, that was the best thing that ever happened. Jesus knew all this about Peter because when Jesus appears to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, one of the things that Jesus goes out of his way to do is he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And in part, there's three times that he asks to specifically address the three denials. So you've got this pairing where Jesus isn't ignorant and he's very, very careful to ask three times. And the the part that really struck, struck me this time was that Peter's response is not just, yes, yes, I love you. But it's, 
yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know this. The thing you're asking, you know that I love you. At which point it struck me that that conversation is fairly useless then, right? Jesus knows Peter's heart and his thoughts. So then what does the asking accomplish? Jesus isn't learning anything here. And Peter already knows, and Jesus knows that Peter knows, and Peter knows that Jesus knows, and all this back and forth and ad nauseum. So who is it that the question is for? Why is he asking this? Why is he asking, Peter, do you love me? The questions are for Peter, because Jesus wants Peter to discover something about himself. He wants Peter to discover the utter poverty of Peter's experience with Christ. And that was a, a concept that as I was writing it down, I'm like, That's, that really grates on me because I'm saying that there's poverty in, experience, in an experience with Jesus. And it's true because the things that Peter sought to do for Christ were wasted time. So the poverty wasn't Christ, the poverty was Peter. They're wasted because Peter's source is his own life. Think about this scene at the courtyard. Peter's warming his hands. Is Peter there? Yeah, he's there. Is Jesus there? Yeah, Jesus is there. So what's lacking is not, you don't have enough people, but that one of those people is just dead weight. And sometimes, not any of us, but some people, uh, let's hypothetically call them Rugi, Ligir, there's a lot of stubbornness that the Lord has created us with because that stubbornness, when subjected to Christ, then it has its correct source. And that life flowing through that stubbornness expresses itself in an unwillingness to yield to deception or to lies. That's healthy. But when the source is me, then that stubbornness is just this cyclical destruction where I circle the drain once more about something that really doesn't matter, or I'm, I'm, I'm just completely distracted with something apart from Jesus. And he's happy to let that go as long as it is healthy, as long as that is what drives me back to him. But now that Peter's convinced from experience that he's got nothing, that is when Jesus recommissions Peter. So back in Luke 5.10, Jesus said, do not fear for now. From now on, you will be catching men. And in John 21, as they're having that conversation at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says to Peter, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. And it's so that Peter will understand that, did he fail? Yes, yeah, he measurably failed. But that failure doesn't suspend the invitation. The result is that Peter went forward by faith, and in Acts 4, we see a completely different man. The expression of him is, is astounding. So from Acts 4, starting from verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There's a whole wonderful section where... People come to him and basically go through this, this scenario where they're like, hey, Jesus, you know it's ridiculous? The resurrection from the dead. Am I right or am I right? And 
for those people to be confronted with this because they've, they've created this intellectual tower in their mind of saying basically I'm right because I'm right and that's why I know that I'm right because I say so and who could be better than me. This frustration to them is again, it's something to drive them back to the Lord. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? This horrible thing? Healing a man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which, has, uh, which, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, yeah, confidence, a little bit of a contrast to Peter's denial and hiding and trying to run away. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and ungood speaking men, untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, so that it will not spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I think that response is, again, it's just astounding because there was a previous arrest that Jesus was part of. And his response was not this, to go along quietly. Let's get with the ear cutting. That's the solution. Let's attack. The, you see none of this here, but it's this confidence which, which he goes forward. And we read through that, and I think most of us hearing this would say, yes, sign me up for that. I'll have one of what he's having. This is great. I like this boldness business. And the Lord says, okay, you may have this. This is open to anyone. First, present all that you are. And so here I come. Jesus, get your pencil out, because you're going to be amazed by all this. Who am I? I'm a German-Canadian turned American. I went to college. Yeah, that's right. For a degree in Bible and Bible teaching, I work with computers. I work with some of the interwebs. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a part-time farmer. Whew. Don't you want to touch me, Jesus? Aren't I amazing? I sound so accomplished. If that's true, then how come 
I finished last week's lesson by signing off that I was done. And why was it necessary for a wonderful brother in Christ to come up to me and say, you know, you got one more session left, right? What? Yeah, you got, this is seven, not eight. So let us review. As a man, respect derived from accomplishment is a big deal. To have another man ask you to do something and then to know that you carried out that request with expertise and professionalism is a big deal. The emotional association is that to do well is to be esteemed. Someone comes up to you and points out to you that you can't quite count to eight. <laughs> that does something to your sense of self-worth. <laughs> you know computers? What comes after seven? Hmm, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I want you touching my computers. It's not an elaborate thing. It's a simple thing. But the Lord knows exactly what to put his finger on. You're so impressed with yourself? Tell me about this. Mm, yeah. He speaks so directly to our heart, and it's something that it ate me up because I am silly. I, I felt this tall with a hat on after that. Just like, just drop me in a hole and throw dirt on me. Just, there's no point in me coming. Un, undescribably foolish. And it's in that, it's in that humiliation and embarrassment that I was so blessed because I'm recounting things. Oh, I went to the, I went to college. I went to all these things. That's the Lord decades ago did things, years ago did things. Wow, that's wonderful that God did things ages ago. Too bad he can't do anything right now. Absolutely he can. It's in this foolishness that the Lord spoke to me and his words were, so while you're busy not counting to eight, what are you counting on? And my response to that was just simply, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Those things that I listed about me, they happened, but since he accomplished them, it's wrong for me to try and take credit. Is there stuff that I've done? Yes. Because of me? No. We don't have time to go into how ridiculous and foolish that I am. I cannot list, well, these are the things that I've experienced, and I was at the source of them. There is so little that I know about many of the things that I've done that it's really, really easy for me to say, this is, I have a wonderful family, and it is not my fault. My wife loves me incredibly, and that is not my fault. I am not. You do not blame me for the, for the blessings that I am saturated in. They are blessings. They come from the Lord. Every good and perfect thing from above. My place is to give thanks to him. Because it's not difficult for a man to live the Christian life. It is impossible. But what's impossible for Peter or me is no challenge for Christ. For all that he says, I have all that he is, and that's all that it takes. To depend on Christ because you know you yourself are completely bankrupt. That's to unlock the expression of Christ in you, the hope, and, um, the hope of glory. And you can see that. I'm not going to go into, into a full contrast, but looking at Judas's response and his grief. And he kills himself. And at that, you see there's still so much pride that says if Judas can't do it, nobody can. There is no hope apart from Judas Iscariot for Judas Iscariot, therefore death. And Peter goes through a similar thing. But 
he does not hold his pride and his self-identity above everything else. And he humbles himself. A self-reliant believer is in a terrible place because like Peter during the arrest and trial, they cannot allow Jesus to be the answer. But thanks be to God because to blunder forward is to prove to myself that Lugi is equally inadequate with Christ as without Christ. And as I prove to myself all that I am not, there is my Lord and Savior, the I am himself, revealing all that he is and all that he will to be, be to me. And so I go to him and I say, I am not smart. This is just enough with the counting to eight, Lord. I get it. You've made your point. I am not smart. If there is any contribution that I make at work, it's not me. I, there's words coming through me. But Jesus, you know more about MySQL databases than I will ever learn and about IP addresses and all this weird stuff. I am not smart, but thank you that you are my wisdom. I am inconsistent, Jesus, but thank you that you are eternally faithful. I am nothing, Jesus, but thank you that you are everything. That, that is the hope that we have, is that we present the nothing that we have to his everything. The only thing harder in life than a problem that's out of your control is a problem where you yourself are the problem. It's revealing and seeing that. That is, that is the most wonderful medicine to pride. And that's something that we have a society that, that understands that and works against it. If you correct and say, by the way, eight count plus one more. I am a victim. It's time to go to court. How dare I be attacked maliciously? Well, thanks be to God that he has worked in my heart, that I don't respond with that, but that in truth, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I guess it's time for me to adult and to say, that's ridiculous. Wow. All right. We move forward. I, f I have fallen and I fall forward. I fall towards Christ. Like Jesus feeding the 5,000, you take all the ina inadequacy that you have. What do you have? What do you need? You need these 10 things, and sometimes the Lord gives you one thing and says, move forward. You've got 5,000 people. Here's half a sandwich. Go feed. You take what you don't have, and you give thanks to God, and you break and yield to the only life that we were ever meant to experience, the life of Jesus in us and through us. If there is anything in Acts, if there is anything in Scripture that we look at and we say, that is admirable, that is worthy of mention, that is worthy of praise, to recognize it's not like Jesus, but it's the very life of God himself. We can recognize good because we have been created from the definition of good himself. There is an echo of his activity that we recognize, but we don't have the ability to produce it in ourselves. We can't manufacture it. And so much of human pride is trying to lower the bar so that it's so unbelievably silly that we can easily step over it to say, ha ha, I have accomplished good. It's six inches high. That's what righteousness is and perfect holiness. I can do these things. And the Lord continually is faithful to take us back and to show us this is, no, you have been made for so much more. The expectations are infinitely higher. 
and it is unacceptable to be afraid of those expectations because you can't do it. That's completely fine. Don't be so distracted by your own incompetence. That's, that's exactly what you need. But to own it and to say, Father, all these things that I see that I can't do, you, you are the answer for those things. You are the hope. You are the enabling. And I don't even know how. I don't understand how you're going to overcome because I've lived with myself my entire life. And I am amazingly foolish. I still astound myself daily at just how much I can forget in such a short order. How is it that you are possibly going to use me? Show me. I want to see. I want to go forward. I want to see. I want to expect whatever it is that you have. And even that is difficult because we look back at life, right? And we say, okay, what has he done in the past? I guess he's going to do the same thing again. And we, try to, we start to apply all of our human logic. And we say, well, I'm here, and I think he wants me there. And the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And he's going to do that. He's going to move me as efficiently as possible in a straight line. And no, that is, that is treacherous human memory playing tricks on you. So here I am. I'm in Canada at age 10. And he's going to have me in the next 30 years. He's going to have me in Texas. So what do we do? We move straight to Texas. No, we move to Germany for a couple years, and then we come back to Canada. We, we, that was wasted, all that mileage. And then we go to Texas, yes, and then we move to South Carolina. No, you had it. Why? And then we move back to Texas. Oh, good. But the Lord doesn't measure efficiency and accomplishment the way that we do because he's not looking to what I'm going to do. He's looking back to the completed work of Jesus. And he's saying, all right, I guess we're good. And that's the picture in, in Hebrews of all that he is. And when you look at the, the atonement, atonement sacrifices throughout the actual millennia, you would have this picture starting with Aaron, standing up, having this high priestly garment, making a sacrifice, once a year. And then the next year, you would have the same picture, Aaron getting up, making a sacrifice, all the way until Aaron's time was up and the next one took over. So you would have this incredibly long line of high priests, all of them in exact synchronization, performing the same motions, giving the same sacrifice every single year. And you look down the line, and then way at the end, you're like, what's that guy doing? He's sitting? What is that slacker doing? Who is that? You stand up there. No. I'm Jesus. I finished it. These guys did stuff. That was important. That was by faith. But they were trusting that, that I'd come along and I'd finish it. So I'm sitting down because there's nothing left to clean. We're done. What are you going to add? What, what else are you going to do? If you need more righteousness, you've got all of mine. That's, that is the beauty of what he says in Matthew 5, where... He's giving all these examples. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And he wraps that section up in Matthew 5 with this fantastic challenge, like, oh, okay, you think you can jump 10 feet? All right, you need to jump 500 feet. Oh, no, stop it. Stop trying to jump that. You can't jump 500 feet. Okay, fine. We need to raise it a little bit more. You think you can jump 500 feet? And he keeps raising the bar as a way of saying this 
is still even not perfect holiness and righteousness the way that is defined by God. This is what's expected. And Matthew 5 and verse 48, he wraps it up and he says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is acceptable. This is the minimum. So, you cause yourself now to be perfect as God is perfect. I'll give you a minute. Just let me know when you're done. Causing your own self to be perfect as God is perfect. This is the expectation, and he keeps it himself. He is, he is the answer. He is the completion. He is the fulfillment. And it's incredible to go through Scripture and to see just from this, this Passion Week that he's, we've covered. It's not even that he's a stand-in and a representative, but it's far more intimate than that. It is, he, is a, he is a surrogate. He is, I don't know what's, what's the term that means even closer than that, but that he became man to represent all of mankind with who he is, which is eternal. So his representation is eternal. It doesn't begin at his birth, but his representation of mankind extends throughout all time. And then the value of his sacrifice is equal to how much he's worth, which is infinite. So you have an endless sacrifice that is worth more than existence, which is the part where my brain goes and just, I'm done. I can't even figure that out. And to understand this is the hope that we have. This is the life that we have. This is the provision that we have. And he desires for us to trust and to know. And the reason why scripture exists is that as time unfolded, he was so careful to create things in creation, but then also to create things in the law that are all images that point to himself, that he is both the engine, he's the fuel, he's the tires, he's the air in the tires, he's the road that the vehicle has to drive on. He is absolutely everything that we need. And it is a silly thing with it, where we look at it and we're like, well, then what do I do? You rest. Okay, oh, that's fantastic. That's so easy. I just, I just rest. Well, hang on. <laughs> Here comes your work week. Here comes your coworkers. Now, rest. Lord, I can't rest with these idiots. No, that's right. You can't. But you need to see that. You need to, you need to re-experience that. You need to come to the end of yourself repeatedly so that in the, all those moments of impossibility, you will find that I'm already there. I've preceded you, and I have an expression of myself, of my love and my life that is not a counterfeit, but that it is truly, it is the manifestation, it is the reality of what Scripture promises. All those things that we're terrified of, like, well, what if, what if this other believer who is representing Christ to the world, what if that person fails? They probably will, but Jesus doesn't. And if he is glorified in that person's failure the way that he is in Peter, then amen, that's wonderful. Because the expectation that we have, it's this from, uh, from Philippians. From Philippians 3, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always is a very lengthy and heavy time frame. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The goal here is to take all that is happening and to give thanks, to take these things to the Lord. And then the consequence is this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Again, it's this reminder. If there's anything around you that you can see that has these qualities, allow those things to take you back to the Lord because they are echoes and they are reflections of who he is. The... The words of Peter, they are wonderful, but they are Jesus' words through a man who has understood that he doesn't have anything to give. It's a man who has been brought to the end of himself and rejoices. He rejoices in a miraculous life greater than himself that he knows that he cannot cause, but he knows that life has pursued him with a passion far greater than anything that he tried to express previously. It is a wonderful thing. And I think oftentimes it's at odds with how we emotionally respond to circumstances, that we have this thought in our mind of like, well, we can't mention Satan because my goodness, he's going to be in this room as soon as he hears his own name. But the Holy Spirit, man, you got to pray and you really have to hassle the Spirit before it works. The Spirit is just, and that's not true, but it's because of our focuses on these different things. The focus is oftentimes on the identities that we've created for ourselves. Can I, can I make yeah, so yeah. I think all this, especially with Peter, is kind of foreshadowed back in Matthew 15. The very next paragraph after that, mm-hmm. he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. You know, the very next paragraph. Yeah. And then the chapter is summarized with Jesus saying to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So it's this picture of born again, not understanding how to live mm-hmm. once he's born, and, and basically continuing to try and live through his own effort or with his or trying to live for the the this world, right? Yeah. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about this world. The way you live is to die. The yeah. way you live is to live in me, not to live in yourself. Yeah. Which I think is the whole picture that comes up later with the denial. Yeah. You know, Peter just doesn't quite get that yet, doesn't understand until finally the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. You know, and he, yeah. right? So to me, it's this picture, and that, I think, is, is the confusing thing about once, once, I think, you become a Christian, is how do you live this life? Yeah. You know? And it's, it's very, uh, it's very, like you said, God doesn't have the straight path. He, his ways are different than man's ways. Yeah. You know? Well, and his, his goal is not to accomplish, he's not trying to deliver some kind of marketing product. But he's working on our hearts not to create an additional transformation. The transformation has, been ta- has taken place. What we need, we already have, and we have all of it. 
And so it's not trying to add more Jesus into our lives, but it's actually trying to get us to a place where we will yield to everything that's already there. Or, and or as get rid of the us. The yeah. Things, you know? And to, to learn and to recover that ground, because I know for me, I am so slow to learn that I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Yeah. So he has to say, I'm, I'll, I'll never deny you. And then he has to go try to lock somebody's head off, which is what he's going for, and he gets an ear. Yeah. But I mean, at that point, he's prepared to die for Jesus. Yeah. Right? He, you've got to admit, he's, he, he's, he's all in. And Jesus says, back off. Well, now he's confused. Yeah. You know, and so then he goes, and he's not sure what's going on. And yeah, he denies Jesus. But, you know, so he's got to go through this whole process and the Lord knows this. Yeah. And the verse I was thinking of is in Psalm 103, he knows that we are but dust, which we completely forget. Yeah. We think we're something special. Yeah. Maybe just dust. Yeah. Um, so he knows what Peter has to go through. And of course we see what Judas goes through, like we said earlier, mm -hmm. and, and he chooses a different path. Um, and Peter is like, I, I can't figure out what's going on. And then Pentecost yeah. A lot becomes, it's a lot of lights get turned on. And, um, and I think so much of what Peter does is you can rewind and look at Moses. And it's the same thing. Here's a problem. I know what to do. I'm going to kill that man. Yeah. And I'm going to hide him in sand. Wow. <laughs> That's a foolproof place to hide someone. <laughs> and then what happens? The Lord's like, no, this is not, get out of Egypt. I don't know what you're doing over there. Oh, Okay. You're going to enable me now? Yes. You're going to spend 40 years in the middle of nowhere. And then I think one of the most incredible sections of Scripture is where it says, Moses is the most, was the most humble man who ever lived. According to the context, that is Moses writing down the words that God tells him to write. And it's this section where it says, like, now, Moses, you are going to write that you are the most humble man who ever lived. And if it's true, it's just this section where you go, I have difficulty writing that down, Father. <laughs> I'm going to be obedient, but I don't think it's entirely okay for, you have said it, you have absolutely said it, but I don't know that I can write down that I am the most humble man who ever lived. Can you have the Holy Spirit? Could you, yeah, can you take that for a second? Because I don't think, but it's this thing of like, why? It's true. Why was he the most humble man that ever lived? Because God shoved him into the back of a warehouse for four decades and said, you cool your heels and you learn something about what you can't do. Now, all right, now we're cooking with beans. Now we can do something. How old are you? Ancient? Fantastic. Do you believe that, you can, do you believe that you're still an Egyptian god? No. Thank goodness. All right. And at that point, it is that going forward where he, he has this education, which I can identify with. <laughs> I am educated. I speak much goodly. And Moses says, I can't speak. I can't. And the Lord says, what is that to me? I am. It, it's a complete non sequitur. Go and do these things. I can't. That's fine, 
Why would you bring that up that you can't do these things? Well, but isn't it going to be difficult if I can't? No, it's going to be much easier if you can own it and if you can go forward because you're not going to be looking to anything of yourself. And with all that I do in and through your life, you are going to be so grateful. And all of the care and the worry is just coming to completely fall off your shoulders because you're going to understand like everything that I've done here. I, it wasn't me. It actually wasn't me. I know it looks like it was me. Stop being distracted by that. It was Jesus. My goodness, he's amazing. Let me tell you how I cannot count to eight because that is a vehicle to explain to you that my God is living and active. And that may not sound impressive to you, but oh my goodness, is that significant to me. I don't know the problems that you have, thank goodness, because I've got so many of my own and I keep creating more. How will I go forward? Because my God lives. He is at will, it is his will to, um, at work in me for his good pleasure. We can't even get the quotes right, right anymore. This story reminds me a lot of Paul getting knocked out before. <clears throat> yeah. He says, I die daily. Yeah. It's Christ, not me. Yeah. I think that was uh, Bob Hobson when he spoke at the Hill. His quote was, every morning I wake up and I get out of bed and I drop dead. And it's true. It's, it is this, this surrendering of everything. And the, the more that we think, well, yeah, but I can do this thing. That's, that's the Lord's opportunity to be like, oh, you can pump gas, can you? All right, here we go. You need me to pump gasoline. You need me for absolutely everything. And if that's terrifying, it's because you're just thinking about yourself. But as you see me, as you see my life expressed in you, all of that incompetence, that is a place of worship. That is a place of gratitude. That is a place of praising me for my experienced provision and the reality of who I am, not years ago and not in the future someday, though we will have those things, and those are wonderful things to hope for. But now, in the middle of, of, of life, in the middle of all the things that there are. <sighs> Kelly, can you pray? Amen. Thank you.